I'm going to go ahead and read in Luke chapter 1, the section for today, and then we will look at what the topic is for today, sort of the title, and we'll do some introductory information and make our way through just a handful of verses this morning. But again, as, as usual, able to stretch it out plenty long enough to fill our time. Luke 1, verse 26 says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, the angel, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. There's a refrigerator magnet verse for you. Then verse 38, Mary said, Behold the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I want to talk today about Christmas wishes bound up in this passage. Uh, I hadn't really thought much about it till I started getting into this passage. Is an interesting Christmas wish from Mary. Maybe you caught it, maybe you missed it. If not, uh, by the end of the service today, you will know exactly what I'm talking about. But to get us thinking along these lines, I found some Christmas wishes from kids, uh, both from the United States and Canada. And here are just a few examples of what kids are wishing for for Christmas. A young girl named Kira, she's three years old and lives in Massachusetts. She said she would like a baby brother or a penguin. Just in case the baby brother thing doesn't work out, penguin, that should be easy. Addie, age four, from New York, said, I want a little kitty that looks like Rudolph, and its little kitty ears should look like antlers. Aw. <laughs> Kids are so, I love the imagination. Uh, Layla, age nine, from Ontario, Canada, said, I want a pillow made of marshmallows. <laughs> Danica, age four, said, I want two bikes and some steak. <laughs> Not sure I figured out the connection on that one, uh, but that's what she would like. Mitchell, age six, from Colorado. I'd love to meet this kid. Well, I'll probably get cold because of the blue fish incident. Don't you want to know what that is? <laughs> I'm like, no, tell me more. I'll probably get cold because of the blue fish incident. Unless Santa wasn't watching that day. I mean, he can't see everything, right? Callum, age three, from Ontario, would like a reciprocating saw and an impact wrench. Three years old. I better get him some Band-Aids with that, too. 
or a dad who can make his own list. <laughs> Roman, age three, from Indiana, would like a remote-controlled car that can change into a plane, a boat, a jet, a rocket ship, and a helicopter, and is big enough to ride in. I said, get me one of those too. I'd like one of those myself. And finally, probably the simplest request from a young guy named Max. Now, keep in mind, he's three and a half years old, and what he said he would like, he's from the United Kingdom, he said he would like sandwiches. Sandwiches. I thought, well, get the kid a sandwich. I mean, how hard can that be? That's a great Christmas wish. Sandwiches. He's evidently a hungry young man. So those are just some examples of Christmas wishes. I tried to find Christmas wishes from teenagers. You know, I couldn't find anything on the internet that had, where a study had been done or teens had been surveyed to see what they were wishing for for Christmas. I did find one little study of some kids that were receiving hospital care. I forget where the location was, but uh, they did mention a few things there, nothing that would really surprise us, except one interesting thing was not unique to just the girls, but the guys also, you know what the teens were wishing for? That they were thinner that they would lose weight. And so many of the the things that were mentioned had to do with physical appearance-based things. And I mentioned that, and I wish I had more information. I'd love to take a poll of our teens here in the church and say, hey, what are you guys wishing for? If we could get down to your heart of hearts in this day and age that you live in. I'd love to ask that question. So if you find out, if you ask them things beyond iPads and iPhones and all that stuff, let me know. I'd love to hear uh, what kids are looking for. And, and I mentioned that about teenagers because if you've heard and read and been around the Christmas story before, it's old familiar territory. Uh, so many of you may be familiar with the fact that Mary betrothed or engaged, as we might say, to this man Joseph is probably only 15, 16 years old. That was the age of betrothal in that day and in that culture. So we have to kind of think about what Mary would have been thinking as a teenager in that time, certainly different in a lot of ways in that area, you know, living in the Middle East at that time in history, different set of problems, different set of issues than teens living in our day and age here in America in in Fluvanna County, Virginia. But certainly there's some issues and similarities that would not be unique to her at that time that certainly our teens would go through and feel today as well. So I just try to think about what if Mary was born today? What if this story was happening today? What would it be like to be Mary? What would it be like to be a 15-year-old girl that receives this information about having a baby and the baby's going to be the son of God and it's going to be a whole life requirement? I mean, just the imagining that myself. I have to put myself in the story. I have to understand from her standpoint. So we learn verse 26. It's the sixth month And the angel Gabriel is sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. So the sixth month is the sixth month of her cousin Elizabeth's pregnancy. This is uh, what Luke records back in the previous part of that. This is the birth of John the Baptist, or what's leading up to the birth of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus. And this is all recorded by a man named Luke. Luke was a doctor. We learn in the first part of the Gospel of Luke that he writes the things he writes for a man named Theophilus, so that this guy could understand that he could trust everything that he'd heard about Jesus, that he could trust all the information. So how does he acquire his information? He acquires it through eyewitness accounts. Look, it says it right there in verse 2. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding, 
from the very first to write to you an orderly account. So he's interviewed, no doubt, eyewitnesses. He's gathered his information. He's compiling in an orderly account the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. So to do that, he no doubt meets with Mary. And he hears the story. Tell me, Mary, about what it was like when this angel came. And so she describes and she explains. And and that's where Luke seems to get his information. Six months, this angel Gabriel sent from who? Sent by who? Sent by God. The Christmas story, if there is to be one for us, must begin with God. We live in a world that has tried to push God out of the Christmas story. Now it's happy holidays and many aren't allowed to say Merry Christmas. And we've talked about that, but what else would there be if you take God out of the Christmas story? There'd be no message. And by the way, maybe you know that between the last time God had spoken to his people and what we're reading now had been 400 years from Malachi to John the Baptist had been 400 years. God had been silent and they had been waiting and hearing nothing and history is happening and things are happening and, and all the rest, but God had not spoken. So when the angel Gabriel shows up with a message from God, this is an indicator that, hey, something big is going to happen. And already Elizabeth this older woman who has not been able to have children. Now she's pregnant. And now six months later, the angel shows up here with Mary. And the interesting thing is where this angel goes to. Look at that. It says there in verse 26, to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now again, on first read, we'd be like, yeah, so what? Big deal. Well, that's really weird that the angel goes to Galilee, which is in the north of Israel, Nazareth specifically, in the southern part of that region, you would expect the angel to go to Jerusalem. I mean, wouldn't you? That's what we would expect. Because you have to look, when you read the Bible, you have to look for those things that are out of the ordinary because we don't serve an ordinary God. We serve an extraordinary God and he works in extraordinary ways and he works in ways that are unexpected. You see, God doesn't think like us. I think it's in Isaiah that God's ways are not our ways. Why do we keep trying to make him think like us? He thinks differently than us. His ways are not our ways. And his thoughts are not our thoughts. If his thoughts were our thoughts, then nobody would get saved. If we were God, everybody would be getting it. Everybody would be getting condemned, punished. But God thinks differently, and he makes a way for everybody to be saved. Yes, even people we don't like. You see, his ways are different than our ways. His thoughts are different than our thoughts. They are, he says, higher than our ways and higher than our thoughts. That means he says to you and I, look, you guys think relative to me on a fairly low level. I mean, I'm not trying to put you down or anything, but I am God after all. And so we have to be recognizing that when it comes to figuring out life, when it comes to figuring out the world we live in, and when it comes to figuring out how things should operate, well, wouldn't you say that God knows best? I mean, I got a four-pound brain, and it doesn't always chug on all cylinders. And so I've just learned in my life that I am not the foremost authority on spiritual things or on anything for that matter. And anytime I think that I am a foremost authority on anything, my wife is glad to remind me that I'm not. She's wonderful that way. She has that great ministry to me that way. And so because of that, because you come in your life, because you have to come to that place where you say, you know, maybe I don't know everything I think I know. You know, I talk to people that claim to be atheists. 
They say, well, I'm an atheist. And you, I've come to the point where I say, are you kidding? That's ridiculous. And they look at me crazy. Like, what do you mean that's ridiculous? It's ridiculous to be an atheist. What do you mean it's ridiculous to be an atheist? Well, I say, let's say you believe that there is no God. You say, I know. You're saying, I know that there is no God. And it, yeah, I know that there's no God. So you're telling me that you know all the knowable information in the world. And that by knowing all the knowable information in the world that you know, there's no God. I mean, that's pretty proud, isn't it? Could you, would you say you know all the knowable information in the world? Well, no, I don't really know all the knowable information in the world. Well, right, of course you don't. Maybe God's existence lies somewhere in that information that you don't know. Could that be possible? Well, yeah, that could be possible. Welcome to the world of agnosticism. You're now no longer an atheist. So, you see, it doesn't make any sense because we have to admit that I just don't know everything. And so the Christmas story begins with God sending a messenger, this angel Gabriel, sending to this village Nazareth, because his ways are not our ways, not to Jerusalem, not to the rabbis, not to the, the high priest's house, where it would be a great place for the Messiah to be born, right, into the high priest's family. But no, Nazareth. Now, Nazareth is what we would call, in familiar terms, a podunk town or village. Population, about 400 at the time of Jesus. It's not on a commercial trade route, so you got to get off the highway, drive a few miles, and then you hit Nazareth. There's only a gas station and a convenience store in Nazareth. That's about it. No, I, I don't know what was there at that time. We visit Nazareth when we go to Israel on our trips. We visit there. We go to Nazareth Village together. But Nazareth was a very small place, a small village. And boy, first service, I got myself in trouble. I mentioned a few places. And I mentioned some things we're familiar with to try to get you a picture. And if you're from there, it's not a knock against where you live. Like we can think of some of the smaller... Look, I'm not even going to do it. This, I'm not going to say anything. This or You know, think in your mind of some small villages in Fluvanna County. You pick your own. And now imagine that God shows up there and does something great from there. You go, what? Nothing ever happens in our little... Let's just go with it. When's the last time you sat down and read the Fluvanna Review? I mean, there's just not a whole lot going on in Fluvanna County, right? Can we agree on that? And look at me. I love Fluvanna County. I'm from Philadelphia. So when I moved to Fluvanna, first of all, everybody's like, what's a, what's a Fluvanna? You know, you got to spell it and go through all that thing, Fluvanna. And then I was just so proud to say... We got no traffic lights. At that time, we didn't. And my driveway is gravel. And the road I live on is gravel. I love that. Well, you're in the middle of nowhere. Yep. And I love it. But that means we're in the middle of nowhere. That means we're not in New York City or Chicago or L.A. It means there's not a whole lot happening. So the angel shows up. Now that he's got his eye and the focus narrows to this singular girl in a nowhere village in ancient Israel called Nazareth. And that's where the angel finds the girl, and I say girl because she's a teenager, who he's chosen, who God has chosen for a special task, for a special calling in her life. And this is fantastic. And this, this story, along with many others, is so important for you and I to understand. Watch what happens. She's a virgin, means she's never been with a man. She's betrothed, which again is the best we can do is engagement. That's the closest we can come. But it was much more serious than engagement. A betrothal was a commitment to be married. Now, again, engagement is as well, but we can break that off. Well, I was engaged, but then I got unengaged, and I got reengaged, and I was engaged to somebody else, and we broke that off. It's more casual in its nature. 
But a betrothal, if you cheated on the person you were betrothed with, that was considered adultery. And the only way to be released from a betrothal was if by the death of your spouse. So it was on the level with marriage in terms of his seriousness. So she was betrothed to Joseph, and he was from the house or the family. He looked back generations, and he was related to King David back in Israel's history. And we get her name, and we know her name, and we've uttered her name for centuries. And her name is Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. What an announcement, right? When an angel shows up, I mean, that's, first of all, a sort of a troubling thing. Like, all of a sudden, this angel shows up in your bedroom or the kitchen or wherever she was, and we don't know. What was she doing when the angel showed up? I mean, was she doing the dishes? Was she sweeping the floor? Was she outside tending the sheep? Was he, she praying? Was she reading her scriptures? You know, what was she doing? We don't know. But the angel busts into the scene and says, rejoice. Huh? Rejoice? Oh, okay. Why? Because you're highly favored. The Lord is with you and you are blessed. Just for bookkeeping, the word blessed is where we get our word eulogy or to speak well of. So Mary, you're going to be one who's spoken well of among all women. People are going to speak well of you. Why? Because the Lord is with you. I mean, and that's reason to rejoice in and of itself. The Lord is with me. Yeah, the Lord is with you. And you are highly favored. Now, that's an interesting word. We only find one other place in the Bible, and it's in the book of Ephesians. Now, the interesting thing about that is it's the root word for that is grace. And we might think if we read this story, well, that's Mary. What in the world does Mary's life have to do with my life? I mean, Mary is Mary. I mean, this is Mary, full of grace. This is the Mary. I mean, she's clearly different and a different category than me. I'm just, you know, your average, everyday Christian. And Mary is like super duper in all the artwork and all the church history and all that. But turn to Ephesians chapter 1, and I'll read to you about the blessings Paul writes in Ephesians, the spiritual blessings we have in Christ. And this is what he says. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, hang with me, to the praise of the glory of his grace, almost there, by which he made us, listen, accepted in the beloved. Made who? Made us. The Ephesian us. The you us. Made us what? Accepted in the beloved. That word made us accepted is the same as for Mary, highly favored. And the root of it is God's grace. And notice the result, way it's translated here in Ephesians, by which he made us accepted. So many people can read that and breathe a sigh of relief. He made us accepted because we spend so much of our life trying to make ourselves accepted. Accepted by who? Accepted by people around us. Even in church, we wrestle with that, don't we? Well, I've got to do certain things. I've got to read this certain Bible. I've got to dress a certain way. Why? Because church won't accept me if I don't. We have these things and these, these measuring rods that we set up, maybe outside of the Word of God, a certain clothing or a certain Bible or a certain this or a certain music. And these are our, and we try so hard because we are desperate to be accepted. And then I read that there's nothing I can do to make myself acceptable 
except to believe because he says he has made us acceptable in who? In the beloved. Who's that? In Christ. Everything, listen, everything that really matters, everything that really counts is all given to you by a gift from God in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Everything that's spiritual, everything that's eternal, everything in this world, everything that's going to be under the tree this year will be in the garbage next year. Maybe not everything, but this stuff of this world, whatever originates here, stays here. So these blessings, they're eternal. These blessings, they're spiritual. These blessings, they're life-changing. And to be accepted, oh, the look in a teenager's eyes and what they will do to be accepted by peers, drugs, alcohol, sex. Why? Just to be accepted. And I'm going to tell you that God says you can be accepted by him. That's even more remarkable. That God says you can be what? Highly favored. Why? Not because of anything you've done, but God has chosen, just like Mary, to extend his grace, yes, to you. I think that's lost a little bit of its oomph, don't you? Because we go, well, yeah, of course. We're, we live on, on this side of the cross, so we sort of expect it. But oh, look at Mary. Look at her response. Back to Luke chapter 1, and we'll look at her response. She's gotten this message from the angel. Hey, rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you. You'd think she'd be jumping for joy. Going, oh, this is great news. I can't believe it. This is awesome. But that's not the response we see. Look what she says. When she saw him, she was troubled, not at his presence necessarily, which would have troubled me, but she was troubled at his saying, what he said. What did he say? He said, rejoice, highly favored one. Lord is with you. You're blessed. She was troubled at that. And it goes on to say, at his saying, and considered what manner of greeting this was. Considered is the word where we get the word dialogue. So she began to dialogue with herself. You know how that goes, right? How often do you dialogue with yourself? Just don't do it like out loud, you know? That then we think you're nuts. But think about Hannah. First Samuel chapter one, she's destroyed because she can't have a baby. She goes to the temple to pray and she's praying. She's speaking to God in her heart, but she's moving her lips and Eli the priest thinks she's lost her mind. In that case, she's talking to God. But in many cases, we have this dialogue with ourselves, And Mary's having that dialogue with herself. Why? I'll tell you why. Because she doesn't feel anything that the angel just told her. How do I know? Remember, she's a teenage girl, probably in a poor family, in a very small podunk village, in a village that's not even named anywhere else in the Bible until Jesus makes it famous. She's a nobody from nowhere. You know, the first time we realized that maybe God was calling us to start a Calvary Chapel, I had to call the person who would then uh, be my senior pastor, I remember calling him up. I was riding in my truck in Keswick and dealing, having this dialogue in my brain, feeling like, well, God is maybe calling me to be a pastor and trying everything I could to not run from that. But I remember calling him up and he answered the phone and I began to tell him about what we felt God was doing when he started Calvary Chapel in Fluvanna County. And I remember telling him, I'm a nobody from nowhere, but can we have a Calvary Chapel in Fluvanna County? And, and I just remember that feeling of like, I am just not worthy. And that's how Mary felt. She's like, nobody from nowhere. Well, how do you know, pastor? I mean, can you really say that? Yeah, I can. On the next page in my Bible, in the rest of chapter one of the Gospel of Luke, 
Mary sings a song, it's called the Magnificat, and she says in that song, for he, God, has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. She didn't think real highly of herself. I don't think she had a distortedly low version of herself. I think she was just honest. You know, everybody's created equal, but not everybody's born equal. Some people are born into wealthy families and they can afford higher education and they have some advantages in life that others don't have. Can we agree on that? Many of us in this room, we're the advantage. Not everybody, but many. And there are some born in the, into the inner city or in poverty or in other places. And so Mary would have seen herself as, I'm not really worth a whole lot because I wasn't really born into, you know, I wasn't born in Jerusalem. I'm not from the aristocracy. I'm not a Sadducee. So when the angel says this to her, that is stunning to her. And the angel has to convince her again. Gabriel said, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. He has to convince her that actually God does and is willing to use, yes, such a girl even as she. Can I take that one step farther? It's not just that God does occasionally condescend to use obscure people who don't feel worthy. It is his regular practice. God continually exalts the humble. He humbles the proud and he exalts the humble. The challenge in our world is everything in our world wants you to have a resume that's loaded with education. And again, please don't misunderstand. In the world, you need that stuff. But it is meaningless in the church. You can have all of the letters after your name. So what was said about the apostles, these were uneducated and untrained men, yet they'd been with Jesus. And they knew it. They were from where? Galilee. Galilee in and of itself was not considered. That was the sticks. You grew up in Galilee. You grew up in the sticks. Fishermen. But this is not just New Testament. Let me just take you on a quick pathway of humility through the Old Testament. Let's start with Moses and looking at people God uses and how God works. Because remember, his ways are not our ways, right? Let's just start with Moses. Burning bush. God comes to Moses, says, hey, I've seen the oppression of my people. I'm going to come down and deliver them. He says to Moses, come now, therefore, and I'll send you to Pharaoh. Moses I'm going to deliver my people and I'm going to send you to do it. Well, Moses would be like, well, of course, God. I mean, why would you look anywhere else? I am certainly equipped for the job. Is that what he says? He says, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? The normal response of people that God can use is the response of humble willingness, but humble disbelief that they could be used. And I say that because it's very empowering to us because the church is built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ and the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, guys that were fishermen and shepherds and accountants and tax collectors and businessmen and doctors and whoever else but people who felt like, you know, do you know where I've come from? Do you know what kind of family I grew up in? Think about, let's go to Gideon. You want to talk about what kind of family you grew up in and how can God possibly use me? I mean, he just uses guys with seminary educations and PhDs and lots of this and lots of training. Gideon, one of the judges in the book of Judges. The Israelites are being oppressed. God comes to Gideon and said, the Lord is with you. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Lord is with you, Gideon, you mighty man of valor. 
Now, Gideon, when God came to him, was hiding from the enemy in a wine press so he couldn't be seen. He was a chicken. And God says to him, get up, you mighty man of valor. See, God sees us in ways we don't see ourselves because God sees what we can do in connection with him. Gideon of himself was a chicken. But with God, he's a mighty man of valor. How does Gideon respond? Yeah, right. If you've been with us, God, why are we seeing all the things happening that we're seeing? Why are the Midianites pouncing on us and stealing all of our grain? So, oh, I'm not sure I believe you, God, if you've really been with us. Well, God says, I'm going to prove that I'm with you and I'm going to use you. He says, go in this might of yours and you will save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent you? Oh, Gideon, you are going to be my miracle. What do you say to that? Well, Gideon said, oh, my Lord, how, pay attention, how can I save Israel? I can't do it. Why? Because my clan is the weakest in the tribe of Manasseh. And beyond that, I am the least in my father's house. You think this is a guy that felt up for the task of saving a nation? Certainly not. And we could go on. We could go on to, to David when God comes to David and says, David, David said, God, I want to build you a house. And God said, no, David, I want to build you a house. No, God, I want to build you a house. No, David, I'm going to build you a house. And they go back and forth. No, they didn't do that. God won. He said, David, I'm building you a house. And he meant a family. And he gives David the promise that's being fulfilled in Luke chapter 1 in Jesus Christ. Here's the promise God makes to David. I am going to set up your seed or your children after you, your generations after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So it's got to go past Solomon, right? David's son is Solomon. It can't, Solomon's kingdom wasn't forever. It's God's kingdom that's forever. So he says, I'm going to establish your kingdom forever. Your throne shall be established forever. What's David's response to that? I mean, David had slain his 10,000s and David was you know, a a mighty warrior. He's a man after God's own heart. And he says to God, I like this. This is one of my favorite prayers in the Bible. This is 2 Samuel 7, verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. And he said, who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? What a statement for David to make. Who am I, Lord? And on and on we can go through the Bible. We can talk about Jeremiah who said, I can't do it because I'm, I'm a youth. I can't speak. Paul said in Romans chapter 12, let not a man think more highly of himself than he ought, but rather think soberly. So having a right understanding of yourself, really you can't get that anywhere but in the Bible because the Bible will tell you who you really are. You know what the Bible says you? You are a sinner. You've fallen short of God's perfection, you've fallen short of God's grace, and you can't earn it yourself. You are a sinner and deserving of condemnation. That's what the Bible will tell you. As good as you've been and as good as you try to be, God's assessment of you is that you are guilty and you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But it doesn't stop there. What else does the Bible say? Once you confess that, once you admit that, once you, you see the log in your own eye and you're humbled by that, then God can take you in that humbled state and exalt you by saying, 
Ha, but I have chosen you. I have selected you to put my love on you, to save you, to pour out my grace on you. And that's what we call the good news. And so we see this all through the Bible. Let not a man think more highly of himself than he ought, but rather think soberly. And when you come to that recognition, you begin not to buy into the self-esteem movement. Look, even modern psychologists are saying that the current self-esteem movement and the psychology and psychiatry that comes with that has ruined us. That's not the church saying it. That's psychologists looking at the result of the psychology that has been put out there for generations. We're seeing the result of it now. What are we seeing? Paul says in the last days, men will be lovers of themselves and boastful and prideful and all the rest. And we're seeing that happen, aren't we? Mary, she was troubled at the saying. The angel says to her, Mary, you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb. That's a good place to conceive. If you're considering it, that's the place to do it. And bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He's going to be the son of the supreme. It's another term and another name for God. So there's no question about who this son is going to be. We've already said that you'll call his name Jesus. Jehovah is salvation. You'll give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be what? No end. Does that sound familiar? Did we just read that somewhere? This is the fulfillment in this son of all that God promised to David and all of Israel through him. Imagine Mary on the ball field and some other mom or dad like leaning over and go, yep, kid that scored that goal, that's my boy. And Mary would just look over and go, never mind. Oh yeah, well, my son. And Mary said to the angel, are you kidding me? I'm gonna have a king for a son? That's not what she says. She says, how can this be? The struggle is not that it will happen, but God, how are you going to do it? You ever ask God that question? Well, God, I see in your word that you say it's going to happen. I don't know how. I mean, resurrection body? How does that happen? I don't know, but God said it will. Miraculous conception? How did that happen? I don't know, but it did or we wouldn't be here. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? She had been a virgin. She had not been intimately with a man. So in her own thinking, in her human terms, it's not possible. But God doesn't work in human terms. God works in the realm of the miraculous. Verse 35, and the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Oh, now that makes it all clear. Why didn't you just say that? Ah. <sighs> The Holy Spirit will come upon you, epi, just like the Spirit of God coming upon the disciples at Pentecost. And the power of the highest will overshadow you, like in the Old Testament, the cloud that overshadowed the tabernacle, the presence of God. Therefore, also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. He will have the nature of God. Jesus is both Son of God and Son of Man. That means he has the nature of God and the nature of man. How in the world does that work? I have no idea. But God is working that out in us, isn't he? In a certain way, we have our own human nature, but we also have in us the nature of God. God has put his nature in us by his spirit. 
But Jesus was fully submitted to the Father. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that Holy One will be called the Son of God. Now, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived the Son in her old age. See, it's not just you, Mary. And this is now the sixth month for her who is called barren, without ability to give birth. Look, this verse is fantastic. For with God, nothing will be impossible. That needs a double underline or a highlight in your Bible. But it doesn't mean what you think it means. That doesn't mean with God that you can dream up something and go do it and that somehow God is going to back you in that. With God, what this would read is with God, no word, no word is powerless. That's the word impossible is without possibility. No word of God is without possibility. Mary said, how is that possible? And the angel just says, it's God we're talking about. And with God, there's nothing that he says, no utterance of his. That's what the word word means. If you need me to define that, there's two words in the Greek, logos. In the beginning was the word, the logos. And the logos became flesh and dwelt among us. This is the other word. This is rhema. That means the literal, physical words that, that God has spoken and their application to our lives and to Mary's life. You see, People make promises. You read cereal boxes that promise you greater immune system boosting. We read cranberry juice that can increase your antioxidants and lower your cholesterol and all these claims. And they're all getting sued for false advertising. Not all of them, many of them. Because they make claims that they can't live up to. We live in a world where we're used to people making grandiose claims and then not being able to produce. And God wants you to know that he doesn't just make flippant, grandiose claims that he can't live up to. If God says it, it is endued with his power. So when you read 2 Corinthians 5, and it says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. That word, when taken into your life by faith, has power. And it will produce in you, God will do what he said he would do in your life. Obedience to the word of God is the key to the power of God because the power is in his word. You do what he says and you watch your life change. God's word is living and powerful. With God, no word is without ability or power. So Mary now has a choice. Uh, what do I do? Uh, find somebody else. I'm not interested. Go elsewhere. Could she have said that? Would God have done that? Absolutely. We'd be reading the story of Joseph and Hannah. And it would be a whole different Christmas deal. But Mary utters these final words that bring us back to our beginning. Christmas wishes, remember that? Verse 38, then Mary said, behold, the maidservant. That sounds too nice. Right there, if you like to in your Bible, circle maidservant and write slave. That's really what that word means. It means someone who is bound. Behold, the one who is bound of the Lord. This is not against her will. Look what she says next. Let it be to me according to what your rhema, that word you said, what you said about me, that's what I want. If you could read it in Greek, I had to look it up because I can't read it in Greek, but let it be is an interesting uh, mood in the Greek language. It's called the optative 
mood. Now that all sounds great and intellectual, and I only say that to say it indicates a wish or a strong desire. Christmas wish, what was Mary's Christmas wish? That everything God said would be hers. And she yielded herself in her humility, in her lowly state, said, God, if you want to use this teenager, if you want to use this businessman, if you want to use this doctor, if you want to use this teacher, if you want to use this unemployed guy, if you want to use this homeless person, then Lord, I'm all yours. Do it. It's the last time you prayed that. You know what a dangerous prayer that is? Simeon will tell Mary, because of this boy of yours, he's going to reveal the hearts of people. I mean, how a person associates with Jesus reveals their heart. And because of that, Mary, your soul is going to be pierced through. It's going to be hard for her to watch her son be tortured on a cross and to wish she could change places with him. But he's there because he wanted to train places with her. This morning, I want to tell you that God, in his grace, wants to extend that grace to you and trade places with you. The very condemnation that you deserve, he wants to take on himself. And you can say, let it be to me according to your word. Lord, if you said it, Christmas begins with a really important wish. You want to live the best Christmas you will ever live? And it starts right here. The best wish you could ever wish for Christmas is, Lord, I desire to experience everything that you have said was true about my life. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I have no idea how this is impacting maybe some of the folks in here that thought that uh, your grace was not for them or that your usefulness was for other people but not them. And Lord, I'm just so thankful we see this young girl, a teenager nonetheless, a teenager laying down her life, giving over her womb, her body to you for your use. Lord, I pray each of us would say, we present our bodies as living sacrifices, just like Mary. Lord, we are excited for what you're going to do in and through us as we yield to you and surrender this Christmas. It's in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.